This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author James Kwok discusses his new book, Economism, Bad Economics, and the Rise of Inequality. Then, PW Editorial Director Jim Elliott takes a look at 2016 in numbers. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. We have a new number one in hardcover fiction. It's The Mistress by Danielle Steele. No surprise that it's at number one. She's uh, always a very, very popular author. Um, this book sold about 25,000 units its first week out, according to Bookscan. Mm. Um, so, a uh, very easy chart topper there. And uh, finally, not John Grisham. Um, out of that uh, number one spot. And this book is, uh, we don't have a review of it, but it's about a woman uh, who is a kept woman. Um, She, uh, her her life was saved by a Russian billionaire who makes her his mistress, quote unquote, though um, there are some less savory terms that could be put on it. Uh, He essentially provides everything for her as long as she provides herself to him and uh, a a love triangle appears when he becomes obsessed with uh, a painter's artwork and she becomes obsessed with the painter's son so uh, lots of intensity there and uh, lots of how do I put this? Wealth porn, mm. uh, you know, mm-hmm. ba- basically getting to see uh, a little glimpse of how the the point one percent lives, right. uh, the the flashy cars and the yachts and the jewels and the gowns and the glamour and the drama. Right. Uh, so that's uh, uh, going to be very big hit with uh, Danielle Steele's big fans. And at number three, we have Below the Belt by Stuart Woods. This is the fortieth book in his Stone Barrington series. Um, really remarkable long-running thriller series uh and stone barrington is a a debonair new york lawyer and uh, our reviewer says uh for this book that uh woods keeps the suspense high all the way to the dramatic conclusion uh, as uh, barrington gets involved doing a favor for a former president and ends up tangled up in some intrigue Mm -hmm. and uh finally down at number 14 we have the final day by william forschen uh this is a thriller he's also written some science fiction uh and uh our, our review of this is not so positive. We say that pompous, windy political discussions swamp the few effective action scenes uh, oh. in, in his conclusion to his trilogy set in the United States, reeling from the effects of a devastating electromagnetic pulse attack. Um, so uh, an interesting premise in EMP would uh, destroy basically all, all electronics and electronic activities down to the computer that helps your car run. Right, right. Um, so even things you think of as mechanical are right. uh, would no longer work. And uh, apparently he does not manage to carry this premise to an exciting conclusion. And uh, that's what we've got on the hardcover fiction list. Very little movement, still pretty much the same as it's been, uh, you know, a couple of things. 
coming up and down the list um, pretty much uh, as it has been. I don't see right. anything dramatic even coming up from uh, from the lower levels up to the top as sometimes happens. Right. Well, um, I guess in nonfiction, we're not seeing too much more movement. We uh, also see only three debuts on the list this week. At number one is Food, Health, and Happiness by Oprah Winfrey. And now this one sold about 41,000 units. And although Oprah's co-written several books, this is only the second one that she is credited with being the main author. Uh, the last one is What I Know For Sure. So this is uh, going along with what we've been seeing in nonfiction the you know uh, in self improvement this one is on cooking food health and happiness so uh, that's at Oprah the the other one that we have uh, down down the line is Telomere Effect by Elizabeth Blackburn and Alyssa Apple uh, which is based on uh, Apple's the Nobel Prize winning research for the role on teleromes in the aging process so uh, we don't have a review of of either one of those uh, that's at number 24 but in the middle there at number 12 we have um, looks like a real fascinating book called The Lost City of the Monkey God by Douglas Preston. Uh, we have uh, this book came to us late, but we have uh, what will be a, a very positive review coming out uh, online, um, most likely as you're listening to this right now. Yep. Uh, we say in this uh, irresist- irresistibly gripping account of his experience as part of an expedition to locate the ancient and ancient city in Honduran mountains reads like a fairy tale minus the myth. So it looks looks pretty good. Reminds me of David Grant. Lost City of Z uh, that was published about three, four years ago. And um, this, I, I always enjoy these, these kind of uh, um, uh, these books, these like travel books that, that you know, kind of explore uh, uh, new areas. And um, this one uh, we had written about for National Geographic. So looks like a lot of fun. Yeah. And um, being Preston's a thriller novelist. And so I'm sure he knows how to make his, uh, his adventure, his real life adventure sound like an right. adventure story. Uh, right. Exactly. Good point. So that sounds very exciting. Yep. Um, like, uh, like some good escapist nonfiction, which is not a thing you hear a lot about. No. And this is great. I'm going to escape very soon. <laughs> I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, James Kwok tells us why inequality is on the rise, so we'll be right back. I'm Danica Kelly, author of Bestiary, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got James Kwok on the line. His new book is Economism, Bad Economics and the Rise of Inequality. James, I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you very much. So tell us about this book. What is bad economics? So economism is about the misuse of some ideas that come out of Economics 101. So if you've taken Economics 101 or if you have some idea about it, the main idea that people take away from it is that supply and demand operating in unregulated markets will produce the best of all possible worlds. And economism, the bad economics, is the, is the simplistic application of this one idea to many, many realms of, of human life and public policy, from education to crime to healthcare to international trade and so on. And the book is about some of the consequences that happen when you try to apply just a little bit of economics to a very complex world. So, um, for example, uh, what are some examples of ways that people oversimplify uh, and try to apply this idea where it's not warranted? 
so I think one of the best examples to use is the, the example of the minimum wage. So the minimum wage has been a hot topic for the past few years because it's quite low. Uh, the federal minimum wage is essentially below the poverty line, and a number of states and cities are trying to increase the minimum wage. But one of the things you learn in Economics 101 very early on is that raising the minimum wage is bad because it creates unemployment. And the basic idea is that if you force people to pay more for labor than they would pay otherwise, you're just going to reduce the amount of labor that people want to hire, which creates unemployment. And this can be shown very easily on a two-dimensional graph, which, as I said, you know, a college freshman learns within their first month of Economics 101, and it seems like a very simple argument. So a lot of what you hear in the press and from politicians about the minimum wage is that uh, raising the minimum wage is, is a nice idea and people mean well, but essentially it's just going to hurt poor people because it will increase unemployment. And I say this is a good example because real labor economists, people who have studied more than you know one semester, people whose life is devoted to this, know that it's a much more complicated situation. And when you look at real-world examples and real-world data, it's very unclear whether raising the minimum wage has any effect at all on unemployment. So this is just an example of where you have actually what's a quite complicated uh, policy issue that can very easily be answered in just a couple of sentences by using this model from Economics 101. And that's essentially what the, the anti-minimum wage side of the debate does. So, you know, we're talking about, you're talking both from, from Economics 101 and, and uh, various undergraduate classes to, to experienced professionals who've been practicing economics. How do these simplistic and maybe, excuse me, misleading uh, economic models migrate, as you talked about in your book, from the undergraduate economics classes to, say, Wall Street or the White House? How is it that, that this, yeah. is, this is possible without, you know, these, these uh, more experienced economics, uh, uh, economists uh, 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 having their say? Well, I think there, there are two reasons for that, which uh, for the purposes of this uh, um, conversation we might as, call, might as well call supply and demand. So on the demand side, um, Economics 101 and the way we talk about economics in today's world, and economics has certainly become much more prominent in the past 30 years than when I was a kid, um, leads people, it, it makes people very susceptible to these kinds of arguments that, you know, all that matters is incentives and, and uh, you know, let markets do their thing and, and the world will become a better place. And then on the other side, I think the thing to look at is who benefits from these kinds of arguments. So, uh, the subtitle of the book is Bad Economics and the Rise of Inequality, because for the most part, um, people who benefit from the Economics 101 view of the world are big businesses and the wealthy. And it's, this is no secret. You know, For the last 60 years, the American conservative movement has largely been supported by a large segment of big business and by the wealthy. And their crusade has been to... Uh, make government smaller, reduce the amount of government intervention in the economy, and essentially just let free markets generate whatever results they will generate. So I think what's happened historically is that these Economics 101 ideas uh, were developed and propagated and, in a sense, industrialized by a lot of think tanks and uh, publications, media outlets that were financed in large part by conservative uh, foundations. Because the basic idea is that I think these entrepreneurs 
political and intellectual entrepreneurs recognized the power of Economics 101 as an ideological tool and invested a lot of money and resources and time in taking those ideas and turning them into a, a potent political ideology. Wow. So um, this is this is starting to sound uh, almost like it's getting into conspiracy theory territory. Uh, but it it's def- it it sounds like there's a lot of evidence to back it up that propagating these ideas benefits a certain segment of the population, but uh, not others. Yeah. So I don't mean to sound conspiratorial at all. So just thinking historically. Um, some of the economists who are best known for propagating and making uh, free market ideas successful in the United States were, one was Friedrich Hayek, who worked in uh, the United Kingdom, and probably the most important was Milton Friedman, an economist at the University of Chicago for a long time. And in the 1950s, they very much saw themselves as lone voices in the wilderness, because in the 1950s, the United States kind of political and intellectual climate was largely dominated by the New Deal. So Dwight Eisenhower was president. He was a Republican, of course, but but Eisenhower was completely reconciled to the New Deal, to the idea that that you would have an interventionist government. And people like Friedman uh, developed these ideas that essentially unregulated free markets would produce better outcomes than government policies. And... They were adopted um, by politicians, beginning with Barry Goldwater. Ronald Reagan was a was a fervent proponent of these ideas, and by, as I said, think tanks such as the American Enterprise Institute and Heritage and Cato and Manhattan, and others. And the reason I say I, I don't mean this to be conspiratorial is this is entirely out in the open. I mean these are right. organizations that say we believe that free markets are uh, will generate prosperity for all Americans. Uh, some of the policies that they they favored, you know, the simplest would be lower taxes um, and lo- and less government regulation directly benefit um, the wealthy who pay the most taxes and businesses who face the most uh, regulation. So I don't mean to say this was in bad faith. Uh, what I mean to say is there was this great confluence of of, uh, of interests between these these large interest groups and these ideas that were very convenient and very helpful for them. So one of the things that you say in your book is that material prosperity should not be society's overriding goal. So we're really talking at this point about uh, people with different goals and different ideas of what to aim for and what to uh, point our economic policies for. And you, you think we've been going in the wrong direction. Tell us about that. Well, I think there are two aspects to that, uh, to that point I make. One is that material prosperity typically is defined in terms of gross domestic product. So if you look at the kind of main numbers that people look at when they look at the United States economy, number one is the rate of growth of gross domestic product, which means uh, the total amount of stuff that we produce, goods and services, how much is that growing from year to year. And so one, uh, one critique is that, well, one is that gross domestic product doesn't necessarily measure the things that produce prosperity very well, uh, just to give the kind of the simplest example, if one company dumps a lot of pollution into a river uh, while making products, those products count as part of GDP. And then if another company cleans the, the pollution out of that river, uh, the work they do to clean up the river also counts as part of, part of GDP. Hmm. More, broad, more broadly, though, I think one of the issues is that 
Uh, we've been looking at, with GDP, we're looking at the total size of the pie. And so we're not looking at how the pie is distributed among people. And so there's, I guess, two things. The first point is that it's kind of intuitive to most people, not to all economists, but to most people, that additional dollars of income or wealth um, have a greater benefit on the lives of, for the lives of poor people than rich people. So what this means is that if you have a situation where the economy is growing, but the vast majority of the gains are going to extremely rich people who don't really need more money, uh, that economic growth is not particularly making society uh, better off. So that's the main, the main sense in which I may, mean that point. Uh, the secondary sense, the second sense is that you know, there's separately a lot of evidence, a lot of it produced by economists as well as psychologists, that past a certain point, um, having more money, having more wealth doesn't actually increase people's well-being uh, insofar as we can measure that directly. And so I think, again, over the past half century, economics has become really the dominant social science in America. If you just look at what people talk about, what's discussed in the media by politicians and so on, um, we may, you know, at some point in the next century, be reaching a point when really the thing we should worry about is no longer the amount of material stuff we have, and there are more important goals for society to focus on. So let's now talk about this rise of, of inequality. How okay. has that played out? Well, so inequality has obviously become a very, um, you know, important topic of discussion in the past five to ten years, and uh, just as mention a couple names. Um, Thomas Piketty's book from about two or three years ago, um, Capitalism, uh, sorry, Capital in the 21st Century, was a, a major contributor to that. Uh, another book by Anthony Atkinson about inequality and economist was, was very influential. So two things have happened, I think. One is that uh, economists have gotten much better at actually studying inequality. And part of that is simply due to the work of people like Piketty and Emmanuel Saez and Gabriel Zuckman, who have found, who have basically been able to analyze detailed tax records uh, provided by the, the IRS, because at the very high end, wealth is concentrated among so few people that unless you can actually see tax records, you can't, you can't get a good picture of who owns what relying just on surveys. Mm. And the basic idea is that if you have a survey of a thousand people, which is good for, enough for most purposes, that might have zero billionaires in it. It probably has zero billionaires in it, so they are, they're underrepresented in most surveys. Um, so one thing is we just know uh, more today than we did even 10 years ago about the distribution of income and the distribution of wealth, and that's, the, that's why we have all these charts that have become famous just in the past few years, essentially showing the income share or the wealth share of, wealth share of the top 0.1% of top 0.01%. And that's why we can say things like, uh, over the past you know, 20 years, the economy has grown, but the average income of the bottom 90% has essentially been flat, and then the gains have been concentrated entirely at the top end. So that research has helped make this a, an important uh, issue. And then the second thing I think that's happened is people have, have been looking, now that we know that the gains of economic growth are not being shared broadly at all, a lot more attention has been paid to why that is. So as I said, for certain, to simplify, for a while what people thought about was how can we make the, the pie grow as a whole. Now we're getting more concerned about the division of the pie. 
And so people are, are thinking more about things like monopolies and antitrust regulation um, as one reason why, uh, you know, you have, you have uh, larger companies that are able to, uh, in the phrase is, extract rents from consumers. We've had a decline of unions, which makes it harder for people to, harder for workers to claim their share of, uh, you know, of the surpluses generated by corporations and so on. So we've had these these uh, developments in the U.S. economy that have contributed to you know less uh, power of labor, less um, less benefits for consumers, and a greater concentration of benefits for corporations and their shareholders, who largely tend to be the well-off. So I think, just to summarize, we know a lot more about inequality, and I think people are much more interested now in the causes of that inequality. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with James Kwok, author of Economism. Now, you are a business law professor at the University of Connecticut. Um, what's your firsthand experience of how these ideas spread? Do you encounter a lot of these, this misinformation and these uh, Economics 101 ideas in your students? So I don't necessarily hear those ideas so much from my, my students, who are still relatively, um, you know, their ideas are not fully formed yet. But I would say I, I became aware of these kinds of ideas more during my business career. So before going to law school, I was a management consultant and worked for a software company and another software company. And one thing one hears a lot in the business world is this idea that, you know, um, the social problems that our country faces our country faces could be solved if we ran the country more like a business and that business people know how to you know, understand real issues and solve real problems. And to some extent, we've seen that with the election of, of Donald Trump as our next uh, president. And I think that uh, often what one hears is that you know, complicated ideas can be reduced to simple economic principles, as I said, such as supply and demand in competitive markets produce optimal outcomes. And so before I went into the business world, I was a, a graduate student in history. I got a PhD. And I, I've just always had the sense that the world is a lot more complicated uh, than it appears in, you know, in the models in an introductory economic class, economics class or an introductory class in, in any subject uh, that is. And then, so that's, I think, where the, you know, the, the initial impetus for this, this uh, book came from. And then secondly, during the financial crisis, that was when I became a blogger and wrote, wrote my first book with Simon Johnson, 13 Bankers. And at that time also, uh, the main topic I focused on then was financial regulation. And one of the main arguments of essentially banks who opposed financial regulation was, look, you guys just don't understand uh, there are these economic laws at work. You know, if you increase regulations for us, or if you make us raise more capital, we're just going to lend less money because supply and demand, yada, yada, yada. And one thing I saw was the extent to which these 
you know, textbook simple arguments were being used essentially to protect the economic interests of this industry, when in fact financial regulation is much more complicated. So that's essentially when I first got, you know, when I became more, let's say, annoyed by the phenomenon <laughs> that I call economism. And since then, I think I've just seen it operate in more and more uh, fields. So what can we do about this? How, what, what ideas can we spread? You know, the simple idea is always the very seductive one, the one that you can, you can just say supply and demand, the invisible hand of the market. You know, people can, yeah. can just um, spread these, these memes. Um, and the complicated idea has, always has an uphill battle to compete with that. So what can we do about that? That is a tough question. I mean, so one of the things I, uh, one of my throwaway lines I like to say is that in the end of the day, the only two things that matter are early childhood education and campaign finance reform, right? Because we need a, basically we need, uh, you know, a, an electorate that's better at critical thinking and we need money out of politics. Okay, well, that's a, that's a pretty straightforward answer, actually. One, <laughs> one is that, that we need... Um, one of the purposes of the book is to try to inoculate people against economism. Uh, and that's why I try to explain this is how supply and demand arguments work. There's a little, you know, economics one one primer in there. And then I try to explain why these arguments don't necessarily hold in the real world in various domains, almost so that it's almost to solve a cocktail party problem. The cocktail party problem is this. You have some progressive, you know, young kid, um, a Bernie Sanders supporter, let's say, and well, let's, let's say it's not a cocktail party at Thanksgiving dinner with their <laughs> uncle, who's a businessman, and the uncle says, no, it's just economics, you don't understand, you're going to make life worse for everyone. And I want people to understand that there are two sides to these stories, that there are no fundamental laws of economics that apply everywhere. And I think that's something that we can do. The, the thing that I would say I am less good at, but I would like someone to do, is I think we need, as you say, you can't, comp you can't fight a simple story with a complicated story. So we need a simple story about how the economy works and how the economy should work uh, other than free markets generate prosperity. And as I said, uh, that's something I don't know if I have the talents for. One, I would say one source of inspiration could be Franklin Roosevelt. So if, if you look at some of the speeches Franklin Roosevelt gave about the economy, he talked that the main things he talked about were jobs and fairness. <laughs> he didn't really talk about the size of the pie. Uh, now, he was president at a time when uh, there very, many people did not have jobs, and there was this huge sense of unfairness about economic outcomes. We are not at that point yet. Hopefully, frankly, we will never get to that point of having a quarter of the country unemployed. Mm. But people, uh, you know, people respond to different ideas. And, uh, you know, we, the country, the Democratic Party, somebody uh, needs to be able to come up with a compelling message other than uh, you know, market forces will make everyone better off. So you co-wrote with Simon Johnson the 2010 book, uh, 13 Bankers, The Wall Street Takeover and the Next Financial Meltdown. Tell us about that and how things have uh, shifted in the years since that book. Okay, so that was a largely a financial crisis book. And the, the, there were a lot of financial crisis books, as you may mm -hmm. recall. And what we tried to add to the conversation was essentially a political dimension. So what we talked about 
you know, we gave a history of the development of the financial industry and why it led to the financial crisis. And our perspective was less. It was that you can't just look at the financial sector in isolation as an economic phenomenon. What happened was that the sector was able to obtain some deregulatory measures in Washington, which enable it to, to make more money, become more concentrated, and that gave it political power. And the political power, which was wielded in many forms, um, helped secure further deregulation and so on, to the point where we had this very large, very unregulated, very dangerous financial system. And one of the points that Simon and I wanted to make was that, look, you can't solve this problem just by tweaking the rules of the financial system. You need to deal with this problem of concentration and political power. This is really an antitrust problem, even though antitrust law, as currently formulated, wouldn't really allow you to do anything about these banks. That was our point. Um, I would say that um, what's happened since then I would say it's too early to tell about the Dodd-Frank Act. I mean, my, my belief is still that it helped around the edges a lot of ways, but did not really eliminate the possibility of another cataclysmic financial crisis. What I would say, the how that book um, applies to the years since then, is I would say that since then we've seen increasing concentration and power, both economic and political, in a number of different industries. The one that I guess people were most aware of recently is pharmaceuticals with Mylan. Mm. Uh, here you have this company, right, which benefits, you know, benefits from government research essentially, uh, and a a patent and the you know excessive protections of the U.S. patent system to essentially charge whatever it wants for life saving uh, life saving medicine. Um, so I think that people have been more cognizant of the fact that. Um, Economic power is becoming very concentrated, and in many cases, that's producing political power. Now, just to, to, to hazard a brief comment on, on the election last year, uh, certainly the idea that there is a shared economic and political elite that controls the world and is not sensitive to ordinary people, that was one of the messages that Donald Trump ran on and helped, I believe, get him elected. It is, of course... Uh, more than ironic, it's catastrophic that, that Donald Trump epitomizes the problem himself. And if you look at his cabinet, which is full of billionaires and multimillionaires, uh, that only underlines uh, the problem. But I think this is, a, this is an issue that obviously Hillary Clinton was unable to, to run on. And again, uh, ironically and catastrophically, if it helped anyone, it helped Donald Trump. So um, another book that you wrote was White House Burning, The Founding Fathers, Our National Debt, and Why It Matters. National debt is something we hear a lot about and especially heard a lot about during the campaign. Um, tell, yeah. us, tell us a little bit about that, because I certainly feel like I don't really understand why it's uh, such a contentious point, why some people are very adamant that we should have no debt, why other people are very adamant that there is a, a purpose to the debt. Um, and and that it and that it has value in a way that you know, for example, an individual household having a lot of credit card debt does not. So so can you break that down for us? I can try. I think the underlying problem is is related to what I talk about in in economism. It's not quite the same. Um, it's a different set of economic concepts. But uh, so first of all, the idea that it's bad for households to go into debt. Therefore, it's bad for the government to go into debt, which is a large part of what you hear, mm -hmm. is very simple and very compelling and very easy to understand. Uh, 
uh, virtually any economist would tell you that's it. It, it doesn't true, and the ba- it's not true. And the basic reason it's not necessarily true is that households can't raise taxes on people. So the government can pay off its debts any time it wants by raising taxes. There could be consequences to that, but, but clearly it's a different kind of uh, situation. White House Burning was a was uh, a book that I'm proud of, but did not have a natural audience, because essentially... The national debt debate is divided between, for the most part, um, at, especially at that time, in 2012, between Republicans saying we have to slash spending, we, this national debt is a huge problem, um, you know, they almost shut down, they almost uh, let us uh, violate the debt ceiling over that in 2012. And on the other hand, Democrats saying the national debt is not something we should worry about today. We need to worry about economic growth. We should actually be borrowing more money and investing that in our economy. And so what Simon and I tried to write write was we we wrote a book saying the national debt is a significant long-term problem. And we need to address that problem in a relatively progressive uh, way. And as I said, that's that's a, a middle position, which for the most part is not a natural audience for. Because as you said, uh, you know, as you said, and as, as I said, the battle lines are pretty starkly drawn on that issue. Now, as to you know, as to whether or not the national debt is a good thing, uh, again, it's a complicated topic. Um, but essentially, the basic reason why, to some extent, it's, it could be a good thing, is that the government can borrow money, could borrow, say, one trillion dollars. And could say invest that in our nation's infrastructure, which needs about one trillion dollars of investment uh, right now, and that investment could generate uh, more economic growth in the future, and that economic growth will provide higher taxes, more tax revenue in the future, which could pay for, pay essentially pay the interest on the trillion dollars we just borrowed. So that's the kind of um, logic that applies to the debt. And unfortunately, that means that it's always a complicated question because it depends on what you're doing with, uh, with the money. And again, it's, it's just easier to, to have debates if you, if you essentially, if you just take one extreme position or the other. So what is your next project? What's the next concept you're going to tackle? You know, I'm one of these people, I'm not good at working on multiple things at once. So it's hard for me to start something until until I finished the previous thing, I would say that um, the thing that I most want to write about right now is I want to write about uh, inequality in the criminal justice system, hmm. which has it's not has not been ever, never been my primary field, but in a sense it's been my secondary field. I'm a board member of the Southern Center for Human Rights, which is a great organization in Atlanta that essentially fights inequality in the criminal justice system. We defend people on death row and do a lot of lawsuits about prison conditions and debtors' prisons and so on. And I think that, uh, so what I would like to do is I'd like to write a book about different aspects of inequality in the criminal justice system and talk both about some of the legal issues involved and also some of the you know, real-world consequences, both for the victims of the system and for society as a whole. I mean, we have, we have a a huge number of people who are less productive than they could be because they are in jail or because they have past convictions and can't get jobs and so on. So, you know, it's a bit of a change of a change of a path, but that's, that's what I'd like to do next. 
Sounds fantastic. We've been talking with James Kwok. You can find his book, Economism, in stores right now. James, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot talks about 2016 by the numbers. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Robert Canigal. I'm the author of Eyes on the Street, The Life of Jane Jacobs. And here we are on Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to tell us all about 2016 in publishing. Hello, Jim. Hello, Mark. Hello, Rose. Hello. It's always nice to have you on the show. Thanks for calling in, even though you're not in the office today. So tell us, what's the big takeaway for 2016 in publishing? We're glad to say that it was another good year for print books. Um, you know, despite all the naysaying uh, not that many years ago, print book sales, you know, according to Nielsen Book Scan, which tracks about 80% of, of all print sales, was up about 3% last year. And that marks the third year in a row that print books were up after a couple years of declining sales when, you know, e-books first, first hit the market in a big way. So um, print is not dead. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, print certainly seems far from dead. Uh, in fact, you know, we don't have any ebook numbers yet, and they're a lot harder to get since Amazon doesn't like to disclose how they're exactly doing. But by all accounts, you know, ebook sales are going to be down again in uh, 2016. So uh, print books ride to the rescue. Fascinating. Okay. Um, do we have a sense of what's behind that, or it's just... Uh if people tried ebooks for a few years and decided actually they weren't all that great, or is there is there some other shift going on? Well, I think it it speaks probably more for the public and the reading readers favoring print. I don't not so much a knock against ebooks, although as you suggest, um, people tried ebooks. I don't think that they're necessarily pulling away from it. It's just that. You know, there was, there was that early spike, and everybody was really interested. Now it's sort of cooled, and people have found print books uh, are what they like to read. And you know, we saw it in adult trade had the had the biggest increase. Sales up about adult nonfiction, I should say, was up about seven percent. And you know, last year that was the case because adult coloring books right. was uh, you know a huge hit. And it's a, it's a little hard to measure apples to apples just because the way adult coloring books have been categorized in 2015 and 2016, they kind of moved around a little. But what we seem to have seen is that while, um, you know, there was no huge blockbuster adult coloring book uh, hit in 2016, there were still lots and lots of adult coloring books that were published. And the sales of adult coloring books in total did seem to go up a bit. And they're all characterized in the adult nonfiction category. So that, um, again, you know, gave, gave a little bit of a boost, so despite people thinking that, you know, there's no way adult coloring books sales can be sustained. And certainly 
the growth was not as, as big last year as it was in 2015, there was still a lot of interest in, in, in the format. And, and it's, I mean, it's interesting that there was a growth, you know, a nice growth this year, uh, considering that while there, you know, as you said, there wasn't the big blockbuster coloring book, there also didn't seem to be the big blockbuster books in general that we had in 2015. Right, that's certainly true, and especially on the adult side. You know, the, the, big, the biggest selling book of last year was uh, J.K. Rowling's you know, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, which sold about four and a half million copies, and according to uh, BookScan, so that's just print. And there was nothing else really close to it. And just trying to get the facts here, I think there was only, let's see, I think two or three other books that even sold a million copies or more. So that does go to show that uh, despite not the, the friendliest environment, that it was really across the board that print was doing pretty well. And that's what Judith was telling us last week about um, what the booksellers were saying at the end of the year, that there was no really big everybody must have this title that everyone was pushing, that you know, what the big title was varied quite a lot from one bookstore to the next. Right, and I, like you say, that really, uh, really, really was the case. The only other two books that sold more than a million units in print were uh, Jeff Kinney's Wimpy Kid, you know, Double Down, and he, he always sells a million copies, sure. so good for him. And, you know, Killing the Rising Sun by you know, Bill O'Reilly and Martin DeGard, which sold, sold a little over a million copies as well. Right. So, um, you know, again, it does show that it was, it was across the board, and in, in some different places. Uh, so uh, let's take a look. You know, juvenile fiction, as we said, was up 4%, and that was largely due to Cursed Child. And, you know, and the J.K. Rowling train just kept on running last year. Mm-hmm. Um, just did a quick look at some of her titles. She had a total of six bestsellers in the, the juvenile category, and those six books alone sold about six and a half million copies and that's including the four and a half for a cursed child and another two million for five other titles and that's only five titles we didn't really dig down deeper into see how some of our other backlists did but i'm sure they did pretty well because once a, a part of book hits things seem to really uh you know they keep the they keep leveraging off of it and it leads to more more sales for other harry potter titles and uh, what were some other notable trends um, well, you know, in uh, adult fiction, it was kind of, a, it was a little bit of the same old, same old, and that's not meaning to, you know, dismiss it at all, but the whole category was down 1%, which isn't too bad. Again, going back to the point that there was no uh, Watchmen title, which, you know, was a big blockbuster last year, mm. um, and that ebooks still are making inroads in certain areas, and uh, those inroads are mainly in the fiction titles, and again, you know, romance was down about eleven percent. Mystery and detective was down about ten percent. You know, and that's something we've seen before. Well, it has been really very healthy. Has been graphic novels, mm-hmm. um, and that segment, you know, was up about eleven percent last year after being up in twenty fifteen. So, you know, it keeps on rolling. And were the sales pretty steady throughout the year, uh, or or did we see bumps around the holidays? Um, well, <laughs> we saw a sort of a bump right at the end. 
Um, you know, there's lots of predictions about post-election bumps and all that sort of stuff. The post-election bump really didn't come until right the week or so before Christmas. Right. Um, I think it was a little scary time for most booksellers when um, right after Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving week was pretty good and it seemed to be a low. And it really wasn't until really that last week before Christmas when I think sales are up about 20% or so over the same week in 2015 that everybody, you know, kind of breathed a sigh of release and said, yes, the, uh, uh, the, the booksellers came out or the, and the, uh, the readers came out. And, you know, for the holiday period, sales were, you know, up one uh, or 2%. So, so that, was, that was good. So, you know, there's, you know, a lot more questions going into... 2017, you know, will there be a blockbuster? I mean, there's a new Paula Hawkins coming out, so people are hopeful about that. You know, what what's going to happen when, now that the election is finally over and Trump will take office in a week from now? Will, will people finally get on with their lives and start, you know, shopping in, in bookstores again? I mean, Barnes & Noble, um, you know, had uh, actually a pretty poor holiday season, and they were right. disappointed in their results. And they they pinned it on that they and Len Riggio, the CEO there, was one of the people who had expected this post election bounce and Barnes and Noble really didn't get it. Mm-hmm. Um so he he did say that right after the holiday period sales were picking up a little bit, so he was hopeful that, you know, as as time marches on, um people will be uh returning to the bookstores. And Amazon is banking on that too. They're they're uh, opening this brick and brick and mortar store, or at least they're uh, saying that they will. Oh uh, well, yeah, uh, they're actually doing more than saying it. They are actually doing it. Um, so I think by spring there'll be about ten or so. Wow. Um, Amazon bookstores opens. Um, you know, they've had the one in Seattle for a while. San Diego's going. You know, everybody here in New York knows that they confirm there will be a. Uh, a store in the midtown, probably in the spring. They got a couple planned for Boston, one for Chicago, and one for Promise, New Jersey. Okay. Really? So Mark, so Mark, <laughs> you can go shopping. Wow. Wow. <laughs> now I know what to do on the weekends. <laughs> I would love to know what market research went into that location. That's fascinating. And Paramus... Yeah, well, you know, we, we, they know where the high-income earners are. Uh, this but. is true. And Paramus, uh, the stores are closed on Sunday, so no uh, book shopping on Sunday. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, well, there's always something happening in the new year, especially from Amazon. <laughs> right. That is true. Well, uh, it'll be interesting to see how things shape up. Jim, thank you so much for uh, calling in and giving us that report. Sure, guys. Have a good one. You too. And now, a final word from our sponsors. I'm Stephen Johnson, the author of Wonderland, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another in-depth author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening.
You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 